Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Today, I'm going to start with a really weird way people are bothering other people, stalking other people, hassling other people through payment apps. Yes, Venmo, Cash App, and the Evil Zell. Later, you know, people ask, when's the best time to buy an airline ticket? When's the best time to do this, that, or the other? And a common refrain with how crazy home prices are for a home buyer, when's the best time to buy a home? The answer, I think real estate professionals have believed for a long time, and it's actually true. I'm going to fill you in. So Venmo, Cash App, Zell. Do you know, let's say you broke up with somebody or you had a stalker or whatever. So you block them, somebody annoying you. You block them on social media. You block their number from texting you. So the latest tool in the toolbox of people who want to harass you, who are mad at you, sore at you, have a grudge against you, is they're now sending you $1 on payment apps. And usually you can do a message with it. And so they're using it as a way to hassle you. Now, the good news is you can block that individual on Venmo and Cash App, but Big Bad Zell refuses to allow people to block you. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about Zell was like, no, we don't allow that. I mean, Zell continues to be a problem after problem after problem after problem. And this is the least of it. It's all the money people are having swiped from them through Zelle. The worst thing with Zelle is the banks have been liars. In late fall, the banks promised that they would launch consumer protections for Zelle in January. Media reported it widely. TV, newspapers, all different media outlets reported that the new consumer protections were coming in January for all these innocents who were bank customers, many who didn't even know they had Zelle activated on their accounts, that consumer protections were going to be in place. And here we are, well into spring, crickets, crickets, there are no consumer protections on Zelle. Zelle is run by a number of the very large banks own the parent company of Zelle. They can't even go in a straight line because you've got a committee put together by all these financial institutions and nobody's ever able to do the right thing for the American people there because it is this group of banks all together, all with their different interests involved. I'm going to tell you again, do not use Zelle. Do not use Zelle because it's too dangerous. 
and check on your app for your financial institution for your bank, or if you sign into your account, see if Zelle is active, deactivate it. Do not use it because it does not have the consumer protections you need to have. Now, Venmo and Cash App also have consumer protection issues. The difference is they are not tied directly and embedded into your checking account, making them extra dangerous. But you see the problem at Zelle, that they can't even fix an obvious thing that Cash App and Venmo fix like that, and that is people stalking you or harassing you or an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever harassing you, and they won't even shut that off. The only way you can stop it, if you have an account with Big Bad Zell, shut down your Zell account. I mean, how stupid is that? Why would banks want to encourage a stalker to be able to harass one of their customers? Zell is bad, rotten, terrible. Do not use it because the money you have in your account could vanish and they don't care. And again, as I have said, For the last two years, if a representative of the parent company of Zelle wishes to go on the podcast and correct me how I'm wrong talking about you as a disgusting product that harms people, you are welcome to come on the podcast and give a rebuttal. And I will let you have a full, fair hearing. But so far, silence. And silence in this case is not golden. Where are the consumer protections that were promised nearly half a year ago? Where are they? This is classic evil because this is total amoral behavior. They know there's a problem with their product, and they just say, oh, well. All right, we'll go to questions now. This one's from Mark in Indiana. I have two questions. Several years ago, you mentioned a free U.S. customs app for re-entry into the States. It worked great when I came back from Belgium, but I lost it when I got a new phone. Mobile Passport. It was called Mobile Passport. Yeah, it's got a new name now. Yeah, there's actually... You found it? Mobile Passport is still around, but when you sign into it, it tells you to download this new app, which is called Mobile Passport Control, MPC, and it's actually done by the... It's the official app of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And so what this does is in at cruise terminals... And at airports, ports of entry that participate, it puts you in a shorter line, hopefully, where you've already entered all your information in there. And so electronically, it's already loaded to the passport control. And you should, in theory, be able to go through significantly quicker than standing in the very, very long lines that people are going to experience, particularly this summer, coming back from overseas trips, you've flown a long way, and then you're standing in an immigration line for 90 minutes. I mean, that is no fun at all. Nothing beats, though, global entry. This, the mobile passport control, is free. Global entry, you have to pay $100 for five years' use. So... Global entry is really for people who a couple times a year typically might take an international trip. And for people who very rarely do so or won't spend the money, 
mobile passport control is a great idea. And if you have global entry, it gives you TSA pre-check as well, so you don't have to pay for that right. separately. And his second question is, I'm going to Italy in the fall. Prices from Chicago are high. I checked East Coast airports and found a deal from Newark to Italy. The return trip has a stopover in Chicago before going back to Newark. With only a carry-on bag, could I simply not get on the connecting flight to New Jersey? It's basic economy, so the ticket would be void if I missed the flight. Yeah, you could absolutely do that, Mark, because you said carry-on, but even if you check bags, when you arrive at the first port of entry, your bags are offloaded from the plane. You have to go through the customs part after immigration, and you have your bags. You can just go to wherever you live in Chicagoland or you're in Indiana. Uh, You can just go home. But here's the thing. From the routing, you said you're on United, and Newark is a big hub for United. You always face the chance that there will be a schedule change between now and when you go, and your return flight will be good news. You're now going nonstop to Newark from Italy. You're no longer going to Chicago to change planes and then go to Newark, and then you'll just have to do what you would have originally done, which is buy a one-way ticket back to Chicago from Newark. That would cost you a little bit of money, but yes, what you want to do works flawlessly. Vicki in Montana says, I have a variable interest rate mortgage at 5.5%. I was reading about how to beat the banks, but I wanted to hear your ideas on this. Right now, I'm paying my mortgage twice a month on the 1st and 15th. But if I were to pay an extra dollar a day, I would essentially not pay any interest and compound interest on the loan. And my entire payment would go towards the principal only, allowing me to pay off my mortgage earlier. This sounds wonderful, but I'm wondering what the drawbacks are. The bank won't like it, but they can't stop you. Will they not consider you for another loan? Another thing, my online bank won't allow me to make a payment on the weekends. So how would you navigate that? I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. I'm going through a divorce, and in the last two years, I've improved my credit score to 750 from 569. Wow. It took a year to qualify for the Costco card. The moment I was approved, I started believing in myself. I am on my way to my own financial freedom. It's a long road, but you make it scenic. Thank you. Oh, well, uh, normally when we hear from somebody going through a divorce, we're hearing the opposite, that their credit score at that point collapses. In your case, you have healed your credit score as you're going through a divorce. Very unusual. And congratulations to you, Vicki. And I hope uh, the next chapter of your life is a wonderful one. Okay, so... I want to explain that whatever you've been reading is not really the way it works. So whatever amount you prepay on a mortgage will have direct benefit for you because those dollars now are paid and there will never be interest on those dollars ever again. And you'll shorten the length of your loan. But you don't eliminate interest on any of your loan balance. It's only the dollars that you're paying extra that you're prepaying that give you so much benefit. And at a 5.5% variable rate, there's enormous benefit to you to prepaying on that mortgage. Uh, There's not necessarily a benefit. Most mortgages, interest is calculated monthly. You want to check your loan documents and see if your mortgage, the interest is calculated daily. A rare product, but some people have that, particularly with adjustable loans. If yours does calculate monthly, then you're having no benefit from splitting your payment in two and paying it 
on the 1st and 15th. You'd be just fine paying it all in one payment. On the other hand, if yours does calculate interest daily, then what you're doing is fantastic because you are eliminating interest simply by paying sooner your payment each month. There's great benefit to you splitting the payment as you are. And your loan documents will show you if interest is calculated daily or calculated on a monthly basis. But the big thing you said, prepaying the mortgage by paying extra on it, that has enormous benefit, especially at your 5.5%. And David in Ohio says, I have two teens who I expect will be starting college in a few years. I have some money saved in 529s for them, but more saved in an emergency fund as everyone recommends. How do I avoid having my emergency fund disqualify them from financial aid when we complete the FAFSA? So what you do is, unless you're already doing so, you put your emergency fund in a Roth IRA. You're allowed to put aside $6,500 each year into a Roth IRA unless you're 50 and over, and then it's an extra 1000 You keep moving money because you said you have a few years. You keep moving money from your emergency fund into your Roth IRA. The money in the Roth, because it's a retirement asset, is not considered as money that is used for college. It is for your retirement, where money you have in savings, as you rightfully pointed out, hurts you on the FAFSA because your expected contribution is based on the assets you have. So I'm telling you to take your emergency fund, your rainy day fund, and put it in a Roth. Isn't that reckless? Because what happens if you need the money? Because it does rain and you need that money. You are allowed to pull your contributions, not earnings, your contributions out of your Roth at any time. I don't want people normally using a Roth IRA as a piggy bank, but in the short term with the need you have to qualify for as much financial aid as possible for your teens, having your emergency fund inside your Roth is a better strategy. And then if you end up not having the rainy day, what have you done? You've now built up retirement savings that grows tax-free and is spent tax-free in retirement. Um, Coming up next, we had the question about the mortgage just a minute ago. We have a lot of first-time home buyers that are just overwhelmed by what's going on with home prices and mortgage rates. The question is, Does it really matter at this time or any other time when in a year you buy a home? And it turns out it does. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
we're in a really rough time to be a seller or a buyer because the home market is in a tough fix. If you're a buyer, people are in seller strike now because of the wave of ultra low mortgage rates we had for years. People can't afford to move because if they're in a loan that starts with a one, two, or three, you're talking about paying much, much more per month for your home if you sell that one, give up the ultra-cheap mortgage, and buy another one where you're going to face a high interest rate. In fact, a lot of people are now becoming involuntary landlords because they're sitting there with a two-point whatever percent mortgage or three-point or one-point something, and their carry costs are so low on the property that if they have to move somewhere else in the country or they decide they want to move to another house, they're taking on a big interest rate on the new house, but the old one they're holding on to, curtailing normal cycles of inventory in the housing market because the math for being a landlord becomes so much more compelling because that ultra-low mortgage rate. I mean, it is a very, very odd cycle. In my estimation, we've never seen any housing cycle like this ever, ever. If you look at the modern housing market starting in 1950 in the United States, never seen anything like this. So sellers aren't moving on, except people who have a situation where they must sell. People pass away. People go into assisted living. People have to move and it's not appropriate or viable in their situation to be a landlord. But the number of homes for sale are more limited. Uh, Buyers are much more careful buying now because so many cannot afford what the payments are going to be. So the housing market's kind of in a freeze with the activity well below normal. So what do you do if you want to buy a home and you see all these conditions? Well, there was a report from a database of a company that sells information in the financial industry, mortgage companies, that kind of thing, called Atom, A-T-T-O-M, Atom Data Solutions. And they crunch data that is national. So there could be local factors that would affect this. Places that what I'm about to say may not apply would be Arizona, principally Arizona, and potentially South Florida. But this is a general trend that home prices and activity of sales much, much, much lower around the country in January and February, both activity and the actual purchase price in January and February than the rest of the year. And at peak prices, as you move into early summer. Why is that? Okay, so in a lot of the country, the greatest interest in buying homes is in the heart of spring because it usually involves school-age kids. School-age kids are changing schools or they're going from a public school to a private school or they're going from elementary to middle or middle to high school or a family's become an empty nester, whatever it is, we traditionally have had this spring selling season bubble and it leads to more activity, more demand, 
higher prices. However, as I've said for as far back as I can remember, good 40 years, the smartest time to be a buyer is when the market is dead, 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 Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, that cycle, the holiday season, November, December, I mean, somebody who's got a home for sale has got to move that home. And it'll usually be a people problem situation, like a divorce, uh, somebody's died, something like that. And that home's in inventory, and it's been sitting probably for a while. The seller's got to move that house on, whoever that is. It could be an executor, whatever. So they got to move that thing. And that's why there are really no buyers out there during the Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's period. And that's when the sellers are more motivated. And that's true even in this oddball market with what I started with, with the shortage of inventory for various reasons and the difficulty for a buyer because these higher interest rates, that the cycle of the calendar still matters. And uh, the holidays are times to be with family and friends and they also turn out to be a great time to buy a place. Krista? Okay, I love this one from Sadie in Colorado. She says, hi, Clark. How much should you stretch to buy a house? Does it ever make sense to build your first home? My fiance and I have lived in our small town in Colorado for about five years, and during that time, housing prices have more than doubled, thanks to vacation homeowners, Airbnbs, and remote workers. I'm a teacher and he is a carpenter, so we make local wages that really cannot compete in the current market. Serious fixer-uppers are selling in the high 300s. We had hoped that mortgage rates going up would bring prices down, but they have stayed steady. We currently share an affordable rental with another couple, and we have a decent down payment saved, but any houses we could put 20% down on would require a lot of work, and we would be quite stretched financially. Or we could build. My fiancé has access to materials at cost, use of heavy machinery, etc., through the construction company he works for, and we could do much of the work ourselves. The odds are good that we'd have immediate equity in a newly built home, but it feels risky. Your thoughts? Okay, so this is actually not risky as long as the two of you don't kill each other in the process. (laughs) But Sadie, I mean, this is something you see in more rural parts of America all the time. People who know construction, who can use heavy machinery, in this case, her husband's a carpenter. I mean, there's such savings opportunity, and it's going to take a while to build the home, obviously, because you'll be doing so much of the work yourself, but you can save a fortune this way. The good news, the cost of construction materials has come way down from the time that there was a frenzy with supply chain disruptions and all of that. And so this is a true opportunity for both of you. Living in a rural area, you have the potential for a USDA loan. That's right. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has a loan program for people in rural areas that's very favorable. And there's a lot of possibilities here. I will tell you that the home you build should be a standard plan. Nothing custom. You want to, uh, you can look online and you can look at home plans and you can buy them where they tell you exactly how many two by fours you need, exactly every dimension that you're going to build. And it is 
much, much easier to do that than to try to do anything architect drawn, custom built. And I think you can pull this off. You got to know that the two of you have the temperament that you would be able to ride through this project together and have it be a joy instead of an agony for you. And I like it because the sweat equity that you would do would give you, as you said, instant equity in the property. Let us know what happens, Sadie. Um, We want to see pictures of the home. Yes. This is from Mick in Nebraska. Dear Coach Howard, I have a question about a Roth IRA. I'm 66 years old, and I had a small Roth IRA of $750 from a past job that didn't meet the $1,000 threshold to keep it in the company plan. So in my naivete, I had them just send me the money, thinking this was going to be a tax-free event. I always heard that the Roth was tax-free withdrawal after 59 and a half years of age. Much to my surprise, $170 was taken out of it for taxes. I guess I can feel good making a small contribution to our national debt, but I would have preferred to get those $170 in my pocket and not Uncle Sam's. Why did the company take taxes out of my Roth? And P.S., you are still the Bill Belichick of financial gurus. I would have named a Nebraska coach, but we don't play college football here any longer. Oh, oh, typical Nebraska fan, just picking on the team. Eventually, you'll be back. You'll be back. I don't know when. It's hard because you got these schools that recruit so heavily in the Southeastern Conference, and it's just so hard to compete because the top prospects automatically go where the football is almost like AAA baseball. But that's a topic for another day. We're not a sports show, although I could talk about football all day (laughs) because football is my life. Uh, Anyway, I'm really perplexed here. I wonder if there's any possibility. First of all, it would normally not be an IRA at an employer. Unless it was a very small company, there maybe could be a SEP IRA, which would be a pre-tax, not a Roth plan. It could be a 401k that they did withholdings from. And there are certain situations involving a Roth 401k where there's a holding period required that could trigger a potential tax event. Just so you and everyone else is aware, with any employer plan, you want to transfer the money into trustee to trustee from that plan into your own IRA. Now, if in fact it was a Roth IRA and you can afford to make up the 170, just put the amount that was issued to you in that check plus the 170 into your own account. You'll get the 170 back when you do your income tax. But you have a 60-day window in which to do that and avoid the tax. And this is from Betty in Georgia. Is it safe to take personal financial information to a community shredding event? Yeah, as long as you see they're actually running the shredders while you're there. Yeah, you're fine doing that. And it's a great idea. Or shredders that run pretty meaningful volume are not that expensive. We have a shredder at home that we burn up all the time. I don't mean it actually burns up. We're using it all the time. But if you don't want to buy one, you just want to get rid of a bulk of records. I've never heard of any scandal involving a community shredding event. And you should be A-OK. And I want to thank you so much for listening today. I hope you heard something that uh, in some way will help you in your life or you'll hear something that you'll be able to help a friend or family member. 
If you like today's episode, please consider leaving a review for us. The way people find out is by word of mouth, both positive and negative. And if you are enjoying what we do and you think others could benefit, please take the time to leave that review. And then you're a member of Team Clark. <laughs>